Well, praise the Lord, everybody. Jesus, our Savior, the Messiah, the King. And so I come and honor his name this morning in this holy place. I am not an introvert. So for all of you who are, you're going to be all right. I was on the Sea of Galilee yesterday at 38,000 feet. And I cried out to Jesus and said, you need to land this here plane right now, Jesus. I cried out and he heard my cry. So I have a worship in my heart today. Hallelujah. I'm telling you what, it was a ride, but God was with me. We had an understanding that I had an assignment. So I got off the plane and had a little shout. And now I'm here composed as much as I can be. But I am grateful to be in this place. I counted an extraordinary privilege to be with brothers and sisters in Christ, in a place that is unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an honor to be standing here with you, and I want to thank Dean Legrone in her absence for entrusting me in this pulpit to bring forth the words of life to such a great community. I pray that I serve the Lord and serve you well this morning through this word. I also, as is custom in my community and culture, want to bring you greetings from two uh, individuals. First, my Pastor uh, Bishop Earl Gilchrist and his wife Pamela Gilchrist, the pastors of a um, Living Word Church and Waters of Life in the Twin Cities. But I also want to greet you on behalf of Bishop Wayne Randolph Felton and Pastor DeAndre Felton. There should be a picture of them, of the Holy Christian Churches International. Bishop Felton, who has been a mentor and a friend and a pastor in my life, is a graduate of this fine institution. 1996 was the year in which he graduated coming all the way from Tuskegee Institute, historically African-American church, and, come in, and coming to this place was a transition for him. He was one of four African-Americans at that time in this institution. And yet he speaks so fondly of Asbury. He talks about being a Beeson scholar. He talks about this being a life-altering place, a place where he learned to be a husband and where his, two of his three children were born. He speaks of it in terms of a spiritual and cultural and personal and radical transformation. So I'm honored to be in this place that so profoundly impacted a man of God who has so profoundly impacted my life. And I don't know where that picture is, but it'll get there at some point. <laughs> so it is an honor to greet you in his name and in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Yep, there he is. Hi, Bishop. And Pastor D. There he is. He loves Asbury, and so he sends a great God bless you on behalf of he and his wife, Pastor DeAndre. I begin this morning in prayer and then in this word, and so if you would join me in prayer, Heavenly Father, the great I am, would you be with us and be with this word that you have given me, for I am yours. Hide me behind your cross. Take all of the preparation and all of the purposefulness of this moment, and Lord God, use it for your glory and your renown. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I begin my message today with good news. To the utter dismay and repulsion of the devil and of her harshest critics, the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world is very much alive and well. To the honor and praise of God, she is experiencing great growth, much of which is coming from parts of the world that have historically been closed to the gospel. In countries such as Myanmar, formerly Burma, where 82% of her people are Buddhist, in Afghanistan, where 98% of her people are Muslim believers, are coming to Christ despite 
great persecution. The same can be said in countries like Colombia, Iran, Pakistan, Brunei, Nigeria, Yemen, Egypt, and of course the great country of China. It is as it was in Exodus chapter 1 verse 20 when God's people were in bondage and the enemy sought to destroy them, but the people continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful because they feared God and not man. Conversely, the church in North America and Europe is experiencing great challenges. When with considerable numbers of people, particularly young people, not only reconsidering church, but faith in Jesus Christ altogether. I could certainly give you the statistics by country, by county, by region, by denomination, but that would be distracting and perhaps a bit disheartening. And beyond that, the numbers, though important, are not the main points of this message. The purpose of this comparison is to get you to scratch your head a bit and to do a little bit of deductive thinking and perhaps determine for yourselves what those reasons might be. Let me help you by taking a quick look at one very important segment of our church population, and that is its young people. In his 2011 research-based book, You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Church, Barna President David Kinneman identifies six primary reasons why young people are disconnecting from church life after a certain point. Among them, the church seems overprotective. We're risk-adversive, so they think. We're stifling. Another reason is that church comes across as antagonistic to science, that Christians are too confident and that we think we know all the answers or that we're, we're afraid to enter into the creation versus evolution debates and the like. They have a feeling that their church experiences related to sexuality are often simplistic. In other words, they feel like we're giving them a list of do's and don'ts until marriage rather than helping them to live in and through temptation. Those arguments I can deal with and I can understand. I've been a youth and young adult pastor for almost 25 years. I think I've heard it all, much like some of you. But these did not concern me to the extent that the last point did, and that is this. They are not experiencing God. They are not experiencing Jesus. Of the 59% of young people who responded to Kinnaman's research projects, which were comprised of eight national studies, including interviews with teenagers, young adults, parents, youth pastors, and senior pastors, 23% of the Bible was not clear, taught clearly or often enough in their churches. And 20% said that God seemed missing from their experience at church. Now, we know that this is not representative of American churches as a whole or young people, but the statistics still speak, and they are making a declaration both in what they have said and not said. And that is coming across loud and clear in my estimation. Don't give us more programs. Don't give us bigger buildings. Don't give us smoke and mirrors. Don't give us coffee shops. Don't give us fabulous surroundings. Don't give us entertaining ser sermons. Give us Jesus. So why preach about Jesus to pastors, to Christian leaders and missionaries, to, to church folks? Why make a fresh case and an impassioned plea to examine the life and claims of Christ to folks who've already memorized the immortal words of Christ, who know it and who study it every day? Here's why. Because these are our children. 
I'm a mother of a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old and a pastor of 2,600 young people who are struggling with these very issues in a Christian college context. These are our nieces, our nephews, our cousins, our friends, because many of us have been where they are because this is the future leadership of the church and in the world, because we are stewards of the church, because we've been given the sacred trust of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world, and because as the body and the bride, we are responsible and we will be held accountable. In his book, Your Jesus is Too Safe, outgrowing a drive-through feel-good savior, author Jared Wilson says, You'd think that if anyone got a handle on Jesus, it would be the Christian church. But we've settled for a glossy portrait. We've used him and abused him and made him into types and stereotypes. We've taken his message out of context and made it about being a better person or being cool or helping us to help ourselves. Consequently, what we have today in a world where Jesus is most cited, most recognized, and most admired is a generation of people who don't know the gospel very well, which means they don't know Jesus very well. The gospel of the kingdom is the essence of Jesus' message. If we have lost sight of that message, it is unfortunately possible that we've lost sight of the messenger. It is a terrifying thought. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ is becoming less and less familiar with Christ. Now each of us has an opportunity today, men and women of God. We have the opportunity to respond to the crisis in our own pews, in our own homes, in our own cities, and as a result, we can offer a different picture and therefore a different response to the world in which we live. Now that's going to require more than an uptick in our theological studies, my friends. It's going to require an uptick in our prayer lives, in scripture memorization, and the disciplines of fasting and prayer, of meditating on the word, of being out in the streets where people are, of opening wide the doors of the church and not being so risk-aversive that we can't touch somebody who's not like us. We've got to be people who were bold. We can't simply look at history and say, where were the good old days? The best days are ahead of us. The latter days shall be greater than the former days. And I'm believing God for those latter days for the church of Jesus Christ. We need to be listening, really listening to what our young people have to say, and not simply to connect with them and tell them where they may be misguided over pizza, but to hear their rumbling spiritual stomachs, which are empty. They are longing to be filled with the food that satisfies. Today's scripture is one that you all know well and that you have probably read many times or perhaps sung as a Sunday school song, and it gives us an opportunity to look afresh at Jesus and at ourselves and who we intend to be. We will each have the opportunity to place ourselves in this message, and after examining our own hearts, align ourselves with one of three in this story, the disciples who happen to be, in this case, Peter and John, the beggar, or the onlookers. We have read the scripture in your hearing. Let me remind you of key points of this message. Peter and John went to pray. Now, this was not only the custom, 
But I believe that God also had probably laid on Peter and John's spirit beyond the custom to have their eyes open. After three years of spending time with his disciples, one of the key things that Jesus taught them was not to be amazed at the miraculous. We must not be amazed at the miraculous brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ's name. We must be those who exhort and make happen the miraculous in Jesus' name. We're seeing all kinds of things on television. We're seeing all kinds of psychics being plotted. Where is the church of Jesus Christ? Where are those who are laying hands on the sick that they may recover? Where are those who are opening blind eyes? Where are those who are willing to walk into gang territory? Where are those who are snatching people out of drunken stupors? Where are those who are speaking to Jesus in Jesus' name and people's very bodies are straightening up at the name of Jesus? It is the name that is above all names, is it not? For is it, if it is not, we have no business to be sitting in this place studying his word. If we don't believe it for ourselves, if he has not transformed us first, we are not prepared to preach this gospel. Because there's a world out there that does not want to hear it. Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and those and the like who are considered part of the four horsemen of atheism are trying to convince the world that is a, that is a, a ridiculous notion to believe in Jesus Christ. But I believe at one point, someday, someone is going to have a face-to-face -face with Richard Dawkins. It's already happening. Oz Guinness and Ravi Zacharias, who I've had the opportunity of studying with, are already having face-to-face -face confrontations with Dr. Dawkins. On the very same campus at Oxford University, you have Richard Dawkins at one end and the Ravi Zacharias Institute on the other. And people are being transformed. And places like Europe that think that they are post-Christian are preparing themselves because underneath all of this atheism is a quaking of saints who are laying on their faces and praying, God be God again in this great nation. And he's waking up a generation of young people. It must be so for us as well. We cannot be more in love with politics or who's in or not in the White House. We've got to be concerned about what God is saying and what thus saith the Lord. We can't be more concerned about who's on Wall Street and who's making more money because they all need Jesus if they're not confessing his name. Sin is an equal opportunity life destroyer. Can I get a witness to that? But Jesus Christ is an equal opportunity lover and transformer of souls. And it is in his name that Peter and John went into this temple to pray. And there was a man lame from birth who was placed daily at the gate called Beautiful to beg for money. Now hear that. He was placed at that gate. So obviously those who placed him at that gate thought his only recourse for survival was to lay at that gate and to beg. How providential of the God of all creation that Peter and John, who knew something different about this Jesus, would walk by this man who was placed at that gate in one condition, but would get up from that gate in another condition entirely. To lay him at this gate called Beautiful was a strategic place to lay this man. The beautiful gate was on the eastern side of the temple. It was to have been adorned with thicker plates of silver and gold and other plates. It was an extraordinary place of beauty. The thought was that those who had money would come in that gate, and so they strategically placed him at this place where they thought he was more apt to receive more alms. But Peter and John had a different plan for him that day. Peter and John looked at him intently as they fixed their eyes on him, and they exclaimed, look at us. Like most beggars, this man has learned to divert his eyes downward. 
Most of us can walk through our major cities and we find people with pieces of cardboard, the placards saying homeless, and they've learned to divert their eyes. But how many of us realize that when it comes to our homeless brothers and sisters and the poor, we need to lock eyes with people and give humanity to people who have not felt like human beings? They locked eyes with him, and slowly his gait and his face looked upwards. This could have been one of the few times in this man's life that someone actually looked at him with hope and not pity. I'm so grateful that God looked at me with hope and not pity. I'm so grateful that while I was still in sin, Christ Jesus died for me. And I grew up in the church. I knew how to play church. I knew which, which pews my grandparents sat in. I knew holy days of obligation, but I can tell you that I did not know Jesus. I did not know his saving power. I did not know what it meant to sacrifice my life. I did not know what it was to crucify my flesh. I knew cycles of sin and confession, but I did not know that Jesus was the way of escape once and for all until someone in their goodness and their mercy showed me the reality of Jesus Christ and his way of escape. And Peter and John looked at this man with hope and not pity. And the lame man looked at them eagerly expecting some money, but he did not get what he expected. How many of you don't want what you expect from Jesus? You want something so much more than what he expects, what we expect for ourselves. Peter and John said, silver and gold I do not have. Now, if we are to read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 43, we know that Peter and John had access to resources. Acts chapter 2, 42 and 43 says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and all the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day and met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Peter and John had access to money. But they didn't have access to that money simply to give that money away. There was a purpose for those dollars. Those resources they had were for the building up of the kingdom and the support of the growing bodies of believers, not simply to put away or to give into somebody's hand. But what they said is, even if we were to give you this silver and this gold, it may give you food for a day. But what we desire to give to you right now, man, who has been placed at this gate for so many days of your life, is greater than anything that you could ever imagine. It's better than silver and it's better than gold. He said, what we do have, that which I can give away freely, that which has been given purpose and shape to my life, let me give it to you. I give you Jesus. I give you a wealth and a freedom that you cannot imagine. For freedom that the Lord gives is for the whole person the mind, the body, and the spirit. Now, friends, let me say there's nothing wrong with money, with beautiful things, with lovely communities. We are in a beautiful place. I am in awe of the lushness of this, this beautiful state of Kentucky. It is gorgeous. Silver and gold have their place unless they are formed and fashioned into graven images and placed proudly at the center of our lives. 
Unlike Aaron, who lost his perspective on his call to shepherd the people of Israel while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the commandments of God, we cannot give in to a consumerist culture which calls us to invest less and spend more. If we do, we will find ourselves and the generations coming after us bowing down to our temporal resources. Some years ago, I was watching the Gaither vocal band on television. Now, let me tell you, I'm not a regular watcher of the Gaither vocal band, but I like the Gaithers. It reminds me of some things in the songs that my grandmama used to sing. So I was watching the Gaither vocal band, and I was introduced to a family called the Crab Family. Does anyone know who the Crab Family is? Let me tell you what, those, them folk can sing, S-A-N-G. Not sing, sang. That's what we call it. They can sing. And one evening, this group of young artists began to sing a beautiful rendition of George Beverly Shea's beautiful song, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And you know the song, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world can afford today. Oh my, let that be the anthem of our lives. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. And they said to him, in the name of that Jesus Christ of the Nazarene, get up and walk. Come out of your lowly estate. Rise up out of your spiritual poverty, your broken existence, and come into the kingdom of God. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, it says the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. How many of you know when God does something in your life, it's not just one thing? He does multiple things. Doesn't the word of God say when we confess our sin, he'll be faithful and just, not only to forgive us our sin, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is a multiplier. Nobody can touch God in terms of what he does and how he blesses us. So not only was this man's uh, ankles healed, they were strengthened. They were restored. They were made stronger than they had ever been before. This man was not restored to who he could have been. He was given a God-sized healing. My God. He jumped up, he stood on his feet, and he began to walk, and then walking, leaping, and praising God. Now, I know none of you walk and leap and praise God up in here. I know this is a sanctified place. I know we need to keep ourselves calm and composed. I know y'all don't jump and praise God, and I know we got to keep it together, but I might have to let that go because God is good. Hallelujah. He went into the temple with them. We have the opportunity before us such as the world has never seen. We are in the midst of a time when women and men are presenting themselves as desperate. They are laying before the gates of our state houses, our churches, and they are begging for answers. That does not mean that the resources of our pockets are the answers. That may feed them for a day or a week or a year. But what about the days beyond that? Brothers and sisters, we must say, as Peter and John did, silver and gold I don't have. I can't fix your job situation. I can't change your lack of health care or coverage at this moment. I can stand with you. I can talk with you. I can walk with you. I can implore with you. I can write messages and letters to our congressmen for you. 
I can't keep your home from being foreclosed on. I can't give you everything you want, but let me give you what you need. Let me give you Jesus. Let me tell you what he's done for me. Let me take you by the hand and pull you up and walk with you into the kingdom of God. Let me show you the greatness of God, not the beauty of our stained glass windows, although those things are fine, but let me lay at the altar of God with you and pray until a change comes. This is not about being simplistic, and it's certainly not suggesting that we should not concern ourselves with those justice issues of the day that require us as the body of Christ to stand up with the oppressed. But we must do more than that. Friends, when Jesus is the reason that we live, when we realize that it is in him alone that we live and move and have our being, when it is for his glory that we study, we preach, we teach, we walk, we love, we press, we raise our children, we raise our hands, we fight the good fight of faith, we feed the hungry, we clothe the naked, we build the church when he once again becomes the desires of all nations, beginning with our nation. I believe that our young people who have been disillusioned and confused will see clearly that Jesus is altogether relevant, that Jesus is altogether wonderful, that Jesus can give them every purpose for living a holy and righteous and sanctified life, that they will once again see the church as Jesus' bride and desire to marry themselves to her. Jesus asked Peter, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. What is the general thought or consensus out there? Young people might say it today. Who do people say that I am? What do they say about me? How many hits do I have on Facebook? Jesus is asking the same thing of us today. Who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? Am I your everything? Am I so real and relevant in your life that my very presence in your life causes you to jump and leap and praise me even in times of adversity? If not, could it be that you're still crippled by life situations and circumstances? God wants to heal us today. Everywhere that you hurt, everywhere that I hurt, everywhere where our eyes cannot see the fullness of his glory, everywhere that it would keep us from giving our lives fully to him or to settle. God wants to free us from the bondage of sin and death. I don't know about you, but I want someone to give me Jesus who calls me to simplicity and sacrifice, not to self-focus like the rich young ruler. I want someone to give me Jesus who calls me to die so that I might learn how to truly live. I want someone to give me Jesus who can touch my body and heal my mind with the word of God. I want someone to give me a Jesus whose compassion had no geographical, no ethic, ethnic, no racial boundaries. Instead, he went to where the need was and he met it. I want someone to give me the Jesus who challenges religious behavior and calls us to pure, unadulterated faith. I want someone to give me a Jesus who points not only to them, himself, but to the Father who alone is good. I want someone to give me a Jesus who has not left us comfortless, but has given us the Holy Spirit to comfort and teach and guide and empower us. I want someone to give me a Jesus who stands out boldly and is lifted high and lifted up in a landscape full of idols and gods. And I want them to lift him up as the one true 
and live in God without shame or compromise. I don't know about you, but I want someone to give me the Jesus who conquered death, hell, and the grave, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now making intercessions for us, who sees us sitting in this place right now, who knows what we study, who knows what we love, who knows what comes against us, and is calling us to remember that the greater one lives on the inside of us, that he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. That's the kind of Jesus that I want. I want Jesus who holds me accountable for how I live this life as it is an indicator of how desperately I desire to reign with him in the next. I'd rather have Jesus than anything, any assignment, any pulpit, any degree that this world can afford today. And when we receive that Jesus, when we hunger for that Jesus, when we say yes, Jesus, in the streets and in the stores, I believe people will see the peculiar spirit that is on us. And they will look upon us and not see our identity, not see our gender, not see our race, but they'll see a glow from the inside out that can only be explained not by the paranormal, but by the Holy Spirit. And they'll say, what is on you? That's what I want. How you're able to walk through that adversity, that's what I want. Your prayer life, that's what I want. Your ability to be kind when that person said horrible things to you, that's what I want. And when they say, what is that? Let us give them, not us. Not our degree, not our city, our state, or our country. Let us give to them the one that was and is, the one who saved our soul, the one who is joy in the morning, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the great I am, the rose of Sharon, the day spring, the true shepherd and bishop of souls, the one that is coming back for a bride without a spot or blemish. I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for this time of preaching. We thank you for this great body of believers. Now, Lord, we commend ourselves and commit ourselves to you. In this season of Lent, and as we're considering what Dr. Legrone said, as we need to look at repentance, Lord God, we repent for the places where we have shrinked back from your word, where we've not been bold, where we have been more thoughtful or and then we have, Lord God, maybe put on ourselves in a place where we were uncomfortable. But Lord, we know that just like Joshua, where you told him to go out and to be strong and courageous, you call us to that same thing today. So Lord, we repent for times and places and seasons where we have not all been all that we need to, to be for you. But in this moment, we say, Lord, afresh, anew, give us Jesus. And let that Jesus transform our lives. And then send us out. And we will go. In his mighty and great name. Amen. Amen.